Welcome to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast, a podcast dedicated to transforming the consciousness around what it means to be healthy and understanding the root causes of both disease and wellness. I am Dr. Andrew Wong, co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, an integrative practice committed to expanding access to holistic root cause medicine to the global community. Today we're bringing you a conversation with Dr. Joe Pizzorno. Very excited to have Dr. Joe on today. And Dr. Joe, for those of you who do not know, or he is an internationally known naturopathic doctor, the founding president of Bastyard University in 1978. And he coined the term science-based natural medicine. I think this is really um, kind of popularized natural medicine, but also has been teaching it to many clinicians throughout the decades. So he's an educator, researcher, lecturer, author of many journal publications and books, including Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine, Textbook of Natural Medicine, which we all like and enjoy and learn a lot from. And then also in 2017, a book called The Toxin Solution. And we'll focus today on toxins because we know that this is really relevant to our health and really want to take a deep dive into this today. He has also been on leadership of the IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine, and is a pioneer in environmental medicine. So Welcome, Dr. Joe, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on today. Well, thank you so much for your very kind introduction and the work you do educating people. Great. Well, just a real basic uh, kind of forest view question, as I'd like to say, is, you know, like just to have the listeners kind of get to know you a bit more is what motivated you to become a doctor, a clinician, and specifically a naturopathic doctor? Good question. <clears throat> and, and surprising. <clears throat> Sorry. If you... Um, knew me earlier in my life, you would not have realized I'd decided to become a doctor. <clears throat> so I've always been totally oriented towards science. So I went out and got involved in a PhD program at Cornell University after I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry. And I was just, you know, really enjoying the idea of doing research. And unfortunately, that was at the height of the Vietnam War. <clears throat> and as it became more and more clear that this was not a good idea for us, um, when I was, uh, started getting at risk at, for getting drafted, I really much more deeply looked at, well, do I want to be involved in war? Or do I want to be involved in not war? And it turned out that the doctoral program I was involved in was contributing to the war effort. So I said, okay, heck with this. <clears throat> I'm going to do something different. Left uh, 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 graduate school, <clears throat> went out to Seattle, and I decided to work in medical research. <clears throat> yeah, totally conventional research. And I was happily doing medical research. And sometimes I think to myself, you know, I think I want to go off and get a PhD in medical research instead. <clears throat> Sorry. So um, started doing research, loved doing it. And then the woman who married my roommate from college, one day when we were having dinner, said, you know, I just got cured of my rheumatoid arthritis. And I said, you did? And the reason I was so curious about that is because I was doing research at University of Washington School of Medicine Department of Rheumatology, trying to find a drug cure for arthritis. And she was cured. So what, what happened? She said, well, <clears throat> I went to an naturopathic doctor and he cured me. So my thought was, first off, this is an incurable disease. <laughs> I work with MDs and PhDs all over the country trying to find a cure. And second thing is, what's an naturopathic doctor? Okay. I mean, I was so medically oriented. I didn't even know chiropractors existed because yeah, okay? yeah. <laughs> they're the kind of the other major field at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> so I went to this the doctor and asked him, so what'd you do for my friend? He said, I taught her how to eat properly and detoxify her liver. 
myself, what does the liver have to do with her, her hands and her knees being swollen? Now remember, this is this is 50 years ago, okay? And so, um, I, 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 but I was curious. So I went to this naturopathic doctor and asked him, uh, you know, what he did for my friend and he described it. And, and, and I said, well, you know, I've got a personal question. I've become a vegetarian and I've noticed my body's gone through some changes. Now, when I asked the MD researchers I was working with, please don't take this offensively, Andrew. I was told diet does not affect you. It's simply an error in your observation. Now remember, this is 50 years ago, and that's what conventional medicine believed, okay? Well, I mean, I went to school uh, later on in time in medical school, but no offense taken at all, Joe, because certainly in medical school, I think there's, we kind of know that in, in, you know, conventional medical school, that nutrition is not taught very well, or certainly not adequately uh-huh. enough to cure rheumatoid arthritis or to make a dent in some of these really uh-huh. complex chronic illnesses that we, we often see now in clinical practice. So anyway, so I, I, you know, being objective, I asked the naturopathic doctor, same question. What these changes in my body mean for becoming a vegetarian? He goes over to his bookshelf, pulls out guidance in medical physiology. I mean, at that point, a standard tech, core textbook in medical schools. And he shows me physiologically what's happening in my body by being vegetarian. So, well, that's interesting. The naturopath knows physiology better than MDs I'm working with. But that wasn't enough, okay? Because I, I like doing research. And then I did a research study that really grabbed my attention. It's totally relevant here. So one of the, uh, we had an MD doing a postdoc there on uh, an investigational new drug for rheumatoid arthritis. And we were going to test it with an animal model. And the animal model at the time was a duck model because you know the duck uh, fins are just really easy to see how swollen the joints are. So we got in the, got in the ducks that had been genetically bred for rheumatoid arthritis as a standard model for drug testing. So we brought him in and we put him in the vivarium and you can imagine what it's like to be a vegetarian and being a vivarian where they do animal research. It was just terrible. So we, we, we go in and check out, yeah, we got the right ducks. And, and now this, this MD was a woman and she was um, a very kind hearted person. So we walk into the lab and we see these poor ducks stuck in these cages and they looked miserable. Okay. You saw my cat walk by. Anybody who has animals as pets and friends knows if they're unhappy, you can tell. Yeah. Okay. So she said, well, this is terrible. So she got to go with her husband and they decided to, they found an empty lab. So they built a, got some sand and some plywood and built a duck run. Then they got this big plastic swimming pool, put some water in it so they could swim around, brought some fresh fruits and vegetables. Now the ducks are quacking and happy, et cetera. Okay. Now, we're waiting for them to get room to arthritis so we can treat them. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And after a couple of months, they didn't get arthritis the way they're supposed to. So this woman had to uh, close her, her, her postdoc. And at the going away party, the MDs and PhDs were looking at her and saying, oh, we're so sorry your experiment failed, and isn't this awful, et cetera, et cetera. And look at them saying, wait a minute, don't you see what just happened? They're genetically bred to get room to arthritis, but if you give them exercise and, and a healthy diet and make them happy, they don't get the arthritis. Isn't that better than a drug? Anyway, so when I did, saw that, I said, you know, I think I'm going to go a different <laughs> different direction in my life. So there you go. There's my story. Great. That's a great story. And I think the ducks are really uh, are teaching us there in that story that that your genes are not your destiny, right? I mean, a lot of people have 
genetics, and we can talk about that a little bit later here today, um, towards, you know, maybe not being able to detoxify as well, but then when you take that environmental piece in there and the, the lifestyle that, you know, can influence the genetic expression, that might actually uh, cause people to, you know, either avoid having uh, detox issues, chronic illnesses, or at least to, you know, certainly ameliorate or reduce the, the uh, expression of those. So, Dr. Joe, why do you believe that toxins are important to pay attention to? And I want to reference an editorial that you did in, in your journal, the IMCJ, where you said, are toxins becoming the primary cause of chronic disease? And you had that question. So I'm curious now in uh, 2021 here, what is your answer to that? Um, if you do feel like toxins are becoming the primary cause of chronic disease, why, why is that? Well, up until COVID, uh, I was flying about 100,000 miles a year, teaching doctors literally all over the world how environmental metals and chemicals have become the primary drivers of chronic disease. And I came to that conclusion after looking at a lot of research. I mean, just a huge amount of research. And you can see that for disease after disease, after specific toxins, uh, as specific toxin levels go up, the incidence of the disease goes up as well. And the one that really grabbed my attention was diabetes. I remember way back in the, in the late 1970s, or actually middle 1970s, when I started primary care practice. <clears throat> I was so excited when I saw my first diabetic patient after nine months in practice. Okay. And you might say, well, as a young practitioner, I wasn't very full. I was fully booked within six months. Okay. You know, I'm a smart guy, I work hard. You know, patients like me, I got good results. So I got a lot of patients. So I finally saw a diabetic patient. So when I was in, so way back then, diabetes affected like one half of 1% of the population. Now it affects 10% of the population with one out of three people projected to get diabetes in their lifetime. What happened? So I started looking. <clears throat> of course, the first thing I looked at was sugar. I mean, you know, we, those of us in nutritional oriented think, well, sugar. But when you look at sugar consumption, it doesn't correlate with the diabetes epidemic. So while I'm not saying sugar is good for people, clearly something else was going on. Then you look at obesity, yes huge correlation with diabetes, okay? And all these people, I mean, a morbidly obese woman has like a 90-fold, 90 times higher risk of getting diabetes. But when I saw this study, uh, it came out of Ducky Lee in South Korea, what she, showed, what she showed was that if you look at obese people who normally get diabetes, but measure the byload of environmental toxins, which researchers are now calling diabetogens, okay? When you look at the body load of, of diabetogens, if they have low levels of diabetogens, it doesn't matter how fat they are, they don't get diabetes. Then you look at a lean person who you don't expect to get diabetes, but if their body is full of diabetogens, they get diabetes. Then I started looking at disease after disease after disease and see the same thing. Dr. Joe, just a little PSA public service announcement. I think Dr. Joe is not saying to go out and run the Cheesecake Factory and get all the cheesecake you can eat, right? So in terms of, you know, sugar and, and everything will be, it sounds like obesity will be necessary, but not sufficient to, um, meaning a metabolic syndrome in the setting of increased visceral fat. And then are those toxins then getting stored in that fat and causing cellular and tissue damage? Is that is that sort of an accurate uh, yes. interpretation so of that? Th th I think key here to understand is what we think about metabolic syndrome, and et cetera, we think about insulin resistance, right? The cells are not responding to insulin properly. Now in the past, that could often be due to deficiency in chromium, for example. 
But now what's happening is these things are being called diabetogens because they bind to the insulin receptor sites on the cells. So the cells can't respond to insulin. In other words, insulin resistance. The pancreas has to overproduce insulin to get sugar into people's cells to keep people alive. And after a while, you have for 20 years, pancreas burns out, it's overused, it dies, and now you get diabetes. So what's happening is it doesn't matter whether a person's fat or not. If their body is full of these metals and chemicals that block the insulin resistance, their insulin receptor sites, they're going to have insulin resistance. So is it is it kind of like a parking space idea if there's too many cars parking that space and you're trying to, that insulin is the car trying to find that parking spot, but there's not enough spaces because the diabetogens are docking in those in those sure. slots that's, that's that's not the way looking at it. insulin has to has to fit into the docking station if there's something already in the docking station it can't come in great thank you so much for clarifying that for for all of us um what what are some important uh, you know for the listeners out there right what are some of the primary sources of environmental toxins in our lives that we might be exposed to whether that's air water in foods or, or other products so um, it's a good question. And it, it turns out that um, we have two problems. Number one is specific toxins cause specific damage in the body. But we also have the issue of total body load because as the toxin levels go up, our ability to protect ourselves becomes uh, less effective and we get more and more damage. Let's go back to diabetes and let's look at phthalates. Okay, so phthalates, what are phthalates? So phthalates are plasticizers. So whenever people are in contact with anything that's plastic, they have a, a risk of getting phthalates into the body, you know, like uh, shower curtains. How hard hits, hits the shower curtain, you smell the plastic, that's phthalates going into your body. But there's another aspect of this, and that is health and beauty aids. So the lotions and potions we put on our skin to make ourselves look pretty and smell nicer, well, they use phthalates to uh, kind of give them that oily feeling and also to solubilize the fragrances in them. Phthalates bind to some receptor sites. So um, I've seen a lot of research on that, but it's primarily US research. So I was invited to lecture on environmental medicine in Australia later this month. So I was, so since unfortunately only the United States and South Korea actually collect data on the body load of environmental toxins in their populations, virtually no other country does it, unfortunately. Uh, so when I was looking at Australia, I was trying to figure out, well, how well does the data from the US apply to Australia? And one of the things I decided to look at was what's the instance of uh, diabetes in Australia and as it compares to the United States. Then I looked at it and I found a study that looked at by load of phthalates in Australia. So I thought, well, could it be a correlation? If, if phthalates are a problem with diabetes, would there be a, a direct correlation between the amount of phthalates in Australia and the amount of phthalates in the United States and the amount of diabetes in Australia, and the amount of diabetes in the United States. <clears throat> so it turns out Australia has about half the incidence of diabetes as the United States. And they have about half the levels of phthalates as in the United States. I thought, well, that's interesting. That's exactly what I would have predicted. So I thought to myself, well, how about another one? How about, as you know, we now have a, an epidemic of kidney failure. And one of the big factors in kidney failures is cadmium. So I found a study that found the cadmium levels in older women in Australia. And I found a study in the United States to look at cadmium levels uh, in older women in the United States. They were the same. 
the cabinet levels in Australia were the same as the cabinet levels in the United States. Then I looked at chronic kidney failure. The instance of chronic kidney failure was the same in Canada and in Australia as it was in the United States. Exactly what I predicted. Then I found another one, and that's um, uh, uh, PAHs or, or um, uh, you know the um, breakdown products of air pollution. Okay, so they um, directly correlate with lung cancer, as I'm sure you well know. Turns out Australia has the highest levels of these uh, PAHs in the air, uh, polycystic aromatic hydrocarbons in the air, in the world, and they have the highest incidence of lung cancer in the world. So I'm saying, so I, as I go back, go look at this in, in country by country, as their toxin levels go up, all the diseases you see in the United States associated with those toxins, those diseases go up in the other countries as well. Long answer, but I think you get the that's idea. That's a no. That's an incredible um, relationship there between you know that that has been really uncovered. It sounds like, and it sounds like in your book and your lectures, etc., you're really uncovering these patterns that a lot of a lot of the general public and clinicians probably have not really realized. Of course, we all know that toxins are bad for us and, you know, things like this. And, you know, of course, we want to avoid polluted air and water and get our clean food, organic food. But just the studies that have been demonstrating here that you just outlined, some of them here, the relationship really between toxic exposure and levels and then incidence of various chronic conditions is is pretty mind-blowing uh, because it's not something we've really thought about probably until very recently, you know, putting it together that you've put together in your book. Um, I wonder about glyphosate. Um, is there any research that you found on, say, glyphosate and metabolic syndrome or other conditions? That, so that is very challenging. Um, uh, how should I say this? I have great uh, concern about glyphosate. However, I also am really, I'm really research-oriented. You know, you know, I'm an HPATH doctor, but I coined the term science-based natural medicine when I found it last year. Because I believe science is a great tool to understand our world and to make good clinical decisions. So when you look at the research on pure glyphosate as a chemical, it has some toxicity in humans. It's not terrible, okay? I, mean, don't, <clears throat> I don't want to be intentionally exposed to it, but it's not, not that bad. But when you look at the research on glyphosate levels in the blood and disease, you see very strong correlations. So it didn't make sense that we see so much disease with correlated with glyphosate, but the glyphosate itself didn't look like it's that toxic. Well, now look at the world work work of Serolini in uh, in France. So he looked at the actual commercial products using glyphosate, things like Roundup. And most people don't realize that Roundup is 50% glyphosate and 50% quote, inert proprietary ingredients. So international law allows these manufacturers, sorry, to um, hide half of what they put in the product. So then when he did the research on the, he actually did animal research comparing what happens to animals on glyphosate, what happens to animals on Roundup, Roundup was a thousand times more toxic than glyphosate. So I look at glyphosate now as an indirect marker of exposure to a lot of bad stuff. But rather glyphosate itself is doing the, how much glyphosate is causing trouble, 
unclear at this point. So in terms of Roundup, that 50% entered ingredients, do, does anyone know like what's in that or is that a proprietary thing that is? is so it's proprietary, but yeah, researchers like Sarah Lini, you know, they've got their analytical laboratories. My, ah. my undergraduate degree happens to be analytical chemistry. You can see what's in it. So what they find? Arsenic, petroleum distillates. Petroleum distillates, highly carcinogenic, very, very toxic. I mean, I mean, there are some things like surfactants, okay, which means makes it easier for it to penetrate the plants. Okay, those aren't particularly toxic. That's what they promote. They say, oh, the other stuff just surfactants. Well, yes, there's surfactants there, but there's a bunch of other really bad stuff there too. So he was able to figure out what it was. And he said the petroleum distillates are accounting for most of the damage. Wow. That's that's really incredible. I had not heard that before. Um, I know you said you had some new research on arsenic. Any any updates on that um, in regards to human health? Uh, thanks for asking that. One of my um, one of the big mysteries I'm uh, addressing right now is why aren't we more aware of the problems of arsenic? Because when I look at arsenic, the the data is, is very clear. Arsenic is the worst environmental toxin being exposed to. And people aren't aware of lead as being a problem. It's worse than lead. Okay. So right now, about 35% of people in the United States have arsenic levels in their body known to increase the risk of disease. What kind of disease are we talking about? Well, how about gout? 50% of gout appears to be due to arsenic. That wasn't in the that's not in the book, textbooks. Now I'll tell you the latest edition of my textbook in natural medicine, it's in there. I think it's the first medical textbook that's actually intentionally put in the role of toxins in disease. But, but here's, here's, here's what's even worse. According to a, a really good research study, looking at over 3,000 people, it was Native Americans in this particular study, they found that one quarter to one third of their major cancers, lung, prostate, pancreatic cancer, were due to arsenic. So I think to myself, why? Why aren't we more aware of how much trouble arsenic is causing? Then another um, theme I've been studying, I've been looking at the, something I'm calling uh, unimportant molecules. Okay. So what do I mean by unimportant molecules? If you look at, if you look at our, um, what we've decided is important for nutrition, vitamins and minerals, things like that, <clears throat> that research was all done about 100 years ago. So 100 years ago, when we're trying to determine what's important in food, we we're limited by our understanding of physiology of the time and by the technology of the time. So we're kind of limited to, well, what things in food are necessary to keep animals alive? And oh, and by the way, in some things we see there's really severe over disease. So we forgot these vitamins, minerals, amino acids, uh, things like that. Turns out there's 42 molecules and, and elements being necessary for life. And we then kind of made a big mistake that Therefore, everything else in food was not important. So now when you grow foods chemically rather than organically, you start losing these other molecules. So I'll ask you a question, take a wild guess. How many molecules are in food total, do you think? Look at all uh, the foods available on the human, for human client. I'm not sure. Well, I'll, give you, I'll give you the number. So here we have 42 molecules considered important. 50,000 molecules were in food. So we decided 99.9% .9 of the stuff in food is not important. Okay, now let's go back to my arsenic thing. So one of the things I decided to do was to try to figure out, well, are there unimportant molecules that are important for protecting us from arsenic? 
I think we can find out when I'm talking about these unimportant molecules, yes, they're not required for life, but they're sure required for health. So it turns out there's some flavonoids that specifically facilitate the detoxification of arsenic. And when we detoxify arsenic, it's critical to be detoxified all the way to dimethyl um, arsenic because there's a halfway step called monomethyl arsenic. Again, technically monomethyl arsenic acid, but it's just called MMA for short. MMA is more toxic than arsenic, like eight times more toxic than arsenic. Whereas DMA, the dimethyl arsenic, is 400 times less toxic than elemental arsenic. Some people get stuck in the MMA-like stage. So what helps make it go from the, all the way from arsenic to MMA arsenic to DMA arsenic? Flavonoids. Well, isn't that interesting? And then another thing, flavonoids play a big role in helping replace the damaged DNA, that caused the damage to the DNA caused by arsenic. So I had one of my researchers look up and give me a list of the flavonoids that both help de increase detoxification of arsenic and protect the body from arsenic. I looked at the list and said, look at that. On that list were molecules I'd seen from my other research that had been lost from the food supply. One of them is called uh, uh, patalin. Sorry, I'm probably not pronouncing the name right. So patalin, which helps protect us from arsenic, is 90% lower in chemically grown foods. So we just lost 90% of our protection. I mean, that's not the only method of protection, but because we are now growing foods chemically rather than naturally, we're losing our ability to protect ourselves from toxins like arsenic. So I think that's why we're seeing all this disease problems with arsenic, because it wasn't as bad 50 years ago when we were eating healthier food. Got it. And, and like you said, we're only measuring these 42 molecules. We're not measuring 50,000 molecules in these foods. Right. Uh, so right. we don't know what the levels of talon are. Um, the talon are. And, and, but, you know, by, buying organic would certainly, you know, sounds like that would be one of the things, one of the strategies. Yes. What, what else can we do to improve our abilities to, uh, you know, listening here, to process toxins and, and to detoxify? You know, if, if, if we're kind of all exposed to this toxic load, um, you know, I, I do want to get into that a little bit uh, later in terms of what are some of the long-term solutions, you know, to help restore planetary health probably. But, mm -hmm. you know, in general, let's say we have, you know, individual coming in um, that's listening to this. To start with that, in, on an individual level, on a family community level, what what can really move the needle on our ability to process these toxins out of our systems? Very, very important. So th there's kind of three areas um, we can cover. Number one is we have to make sure we have all, all the nutrients that are known to be necessary for human life. Well, we need to make sure we have them because the enzymes responsible for detoxification depend upon the vitamins and minerals and things like that. So for example, if a woman is um, having severe anemia, uh, maybe excess uh, menstruation, well, the key and the whole class of phase one enzymes that are key for detoxifying these chemicals we're being exposed to, they depend upon iron for their core. So if deficient in iron, these aren't gonna work as well. So basically good nutrition is critical. The second thing is, to support the body's own natural processes. So for example, the way we get rid of a lot of these chemicals is by them being processed in the liver and dumped into the gut. Well, when those systems evolved, we were consuming 100, 150 grams of sugar uh, of fiber a day. Now we consume 15 to 20 grams of fiber a day. So we're not, we're not consuming enough fiber to bind to the toxins that the body's getting rid of, so they get reabsorbed through, through something called intrapack recirculation. 
The third area is glutathione. So glutathione is one of the most important molecules in the body because it plays a huge role in protecting us from oxidative stress and for directly detoxifying many of these chemicals we're being exposed to. And the easiest and cheapest way to increase glutathione levels is by taking a supplement called N-acetylcysteine or NAC for short. So if people take NAC, the glutathione levels go up, it makes it easier to get rid of toxins. Thank you so much for that uh, comprehensive answer. And I have a little tangent to that because I know there's been some uh, grapevine talk about NAC not being available and whatnot. What's the latest on that? Is, is it, it seems like it's available, but what are your thoughts about NAC? Um, it's clear that the FDA is in the process of trying to make it unavailable to the public. And that's, I, it's, it's inexplicable to me unless you want to be a conspiracy uh, theorist, okay? So NAC, um, you know, as medical doctor, you know, NAC has been used for, for years for people with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. There's a lot of studies out there showing people with cystic fibrosis, give them two grams of NAC a day, and virtually no side effects. There's a small portion of people who have a side effect, but it's very rare. Why all of a sudden do they want to make it into a drug? I don't, I don't get it. So we should all stock up on NEC potentially, or I, have I would I would encourage that. Yes. Yes. That's, so it's it's one of my personal anti-aging supplements because yeah. one of the best ways to help age healthily is to have high glutathione levels. Great. And um, what are some food sources of of cysteine? You know, if, let's say that someone can't get NEC or doesn't know where to find it. What are some good food sources of kind of increasing probably cysteine and glutathione overall? Yeah. Yeah, so it's just the cysteine. Uh, so uh, typically whey powder uh, is the, the best alternative to NAC for increasing people's glutathione levels. Great, thank you so much. Um, and then uh, let's say someone has a history of toxic burden. You know, a lot of people actually might have toxic burden and not really know it. You know, they have diabetes, they have joint pain or, or whatnot. And I think from our conversation, for the first part of this conversation, we've kind of realized that, oh, maybe maybe this is actually a toxic burden going on. And this could be some of the root cause or even the primary cause. But how can that person or people help to heal their bodies from this toxic burden if they already have some toxic burden that's manifesting as an illness? That's why I wrote my book, The Toxin Solution. Great. Okay. So this is this is a key question. I think it's critical for people to understand this. There are a lot of detox programs on the marketplace. So I say to people, wait a minute, don't go on a detox program until your organs of elimination are working properly. There's the old time naturopathic concept of the emunctors. Okay. So what do you mean by that? So what it has happens is because we're being exposed to so many toxins at levels above what the body can get rid of, the body sequesters a bunch of these things in the, you might say, deep recesses of the body where they're not very physiologically active, just try to get rid of them because they're hard to get rid of. So if you start doing a detox program that releases these deep toxins, but your liver's not functioning properly, your kidneys aren't functioning properly, your gut is toxic, you're just gonna make yourself more toxic. You'll just redistribute them from where they're sequestered to where they're gonna start causing more active damage. So I, I recommend people go through a kind of a three-step process. Step one is stop exposing yourself to toxins. I mean, seriously, you gotta basically realize that every day, every choice we make has a toxin component to it. So start making choices to decrease toxicity in every way possible. Do that for a couple of weeks. And what people will find with, is within two weeks of carefully avoiding 
as many toxins as they can, they will notice their bodies are functioning better because the toxins can be broken into two classes. When we think medicine chemicals, more conveniently or more clinically useful is think about persistent versus non-persistent. So non-persistent toxins, uh, the body can clear out in a day or two. Persistent toxins take years to even decades to get rid of. And near as I can tell, and this is a real rough uh, estimate, I'd say about half of the toxicity people are experiencing is from uh, non-persistent toxins. So if you stop your exposure to EPA and to phthalates and to arsenic and all the other non-persistent toxins, within two weeks, people will feel better. And that then engages them to do the long-term work to get rid of the, those really non those persistent toxins. It's hard to get rid of. So two weeks, avoid the toxins. Then they spend two weeks cleaning up your gut. Because remember, whatever comes gets absorbed into the body from the gut first goes to the liver before it goes into general circulation. Well, if you keep on flooding the liver with toxic molecules from the wrong bacteria in the gut, now the liver's not gonna have the ability to detox for everything else. So clean up the gut. Then we wanna clean up the liver, get the liver functioning pro properly, use cholagogs as necessary, use B vitamins required, make sure all those enzymes work the way it's supposed to. And then the third area is we are now having a kidney failure epidemic. I mean, a condition which was rare is now common. So we, cut it, we have to restore our kidneys. And the good news is, we can do a lot to restore our kidneys. And this is something I, I think you might find interesting, uh, Dr. Wong. Um, as I was looking at kidney failure, it turns out most of the kidney failure is actually due to damage to the microvasculature of the kidneys. So if you can prove the blood supply to the kidneys, kidney function goes up dramatically. So I, in my book, I say, well, here's a bunch of strategies for how you get the kidneys functioning better. And the first part is stop damaging them like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, extremely damaging to the kidneys. So we stop damaging the kidneys and then do things like blueberries, beet juice, chocolate, okay? All of these have been shown to improve kidney function. So you can go through, and, and we've got examples of people looking at their EGFR that as they engage in these behaviors, their EGFR improves. You're gonna love this one. There's one study I found that looked at people with um, various stages of kidney failure. And as you know, people in stage five kidney failure, you know, you know their, their EGFR is below, you know, it depends on who's looking at it, but below 30, maybe even lower than that. And they're typically people who are gonna need, need to be on dialysis or get a kidney transplant. So one study, all they did was take people with stage five kidney failure and have them stop using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. That was the only intervention. Six months later, their average EGFR went from 15 to 30. Wow. So it doubled just by stopping the damage. So I use this with my students as an example. The body has tremendous ability to heal if we just give it a chance. This is what we need to doctors have been saying forever. The body can heal, but we have to help it figure out what's stopping it. And here's a great example. The kidneys will heal if you stop damaging them. Yeah, and an EGFR of... 15 to 30, I mean, that that's might be the difference between someone needing dialysis and, and maybe not needing dialysis, it sounds yes. like. And, yeah, and if, we could, if we could do that in six months just by stopping damage, what can you do if you add to that all the things the kidneys need to function better? And that's so cool. And luckily, 
berries, beets, and chocolate or cocoa are all very tasty foods. <laughs> so yes. that's very helpful. Um, let's kind of make the connection for our listeners in terms of toxins and some of the issues they might be dealing with. Like there might be hormone imbalance, like adrenal or thyroid imbalances. And also people are having, I think, increasingly um, increasing amounts of trouble with losing weight. You know, everyone's mm-hmm. kind of... Uh, you know, concerned about that. What is the relationship between toxins and hormone balance and then also with regards to to weight gain and and weight, um, I guess, resistance to weight loss? Yeah, Yeah, great questions. So now you can see the conventional endocrine societies are now starting to use the term endocrine disruptors. So rather than saying environmental toxins, that's, oh, we'll we'll call it something different so we can pretend that we own it. Okay, sorry about that little political comment there. So... um, Huge amounts of research, huge amounts of research. So for example, as PCB levels go up, that's polychlorinated biphenyls that were banned over 40 years ago, but they are persistent organic pollutants. The half-life of these things in the human body ranges from two to 20 years, depending upon the particular uh, PCB. Okay, so the more chlorinated the PCB, polychlorinated biphenyls, the more chlorinated it is, the harder it is to, to break down. So. You might go to a restaurant and order the farmed fish, and in that farmed fish will be PCBs, and some of those PCBs will be with you for the rest of your life. And those PCBs directly correlate with rheumatoid arthritis in women and decreased thyroid function in both men and women. Okay. How about those phthalates I just talked about? So not only do the phthalates block insulin receptor sites, they block testosterone receptor sites. So they're basically feminizing men by using these agents because now the testosterone sites don't work anymore and they're getting estrogenic effects from all these other chemicals in the environment. I so, can keep going. So, so some <laughs> of the, some of the, yeah, this is incredible. And, uh, but it's also depressing because I, I know that some of the labs, which I won't name, you know, some of the conventional standard national labs, they've, they've reduced the range of testosterone of T in men to reflect the, you know, decline of testosterone and the, 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 the mean or the average level of testosterone um, over the past five years. And I think that a lot of it does have to do with these plastics and plasticizers, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah, unfortunately, can, most of the laboratory normals are defined by what's typical in the environment or in the population rather than by, what, by what's healthy in the population. I mean, environmental toxins does seem to be a more accurate way to describe them. So <laughs> I will <laughs> right. go with that. Um, yeah, and so um, what, about, what about brain health and you know, cognitive decline, MCI, which is mild cognitive impairment, or even dementia? Like, what's the role of, uh, I guess, what's the role of toxins both in neurodegenerative diseases, but also just in terms of brain health in general? Huge. Okay, so let's, so we know we're having a, a, an epidemic now of dementia. Okay, um, so we start saying, well, could it be correlated with those neurotoxic pesticides we put on our food supply? So let's start at with the fetus. So if you look at um, babies born to women in the top ten percent of body load of organophosphate pesticides, and compare them to children born to women with a bottom ten percent of body load you iron out all the socioeconomic differences and look just at their IQ. The kids born to women with the top levels of organophosphate pesticides have a seven point drop in IQ. Three studies have now shown the same things. And one of the studies follow these kids for another like five years, they never get the IQ back. So what happens is the brain can't develop properly in the presence of neurotoxins, okay? We knew that about lead, that's why we decreased lead in the environment. But how can we're not paying attention to what's going up or down phosphates? 
Now let's look at an adult. So let's look at people over the age of 65. Let's measure their um, cognitive function and let's measure their body load of organochlorine pesticides. So we have organophosphate pesticides wiping out fetus, the fetus's brains or damaging fetus's brains. Now let's look at another uh, neurotoxic, which is organochlorine pesticides. And it turns out that as the organochlorine pesticide level goes up, the incidence of uh, de dementia goes up as well. So people in the top 5% of body load, that's one out of 20 people, that's not a lot, they're 6.5 times more likely to have Alzheimer's disease than those who do not have a high body load of that chemical. And how about the top 10%, three times more likely. Wow. So that's just one toxin. Then you add mercury to that. And I mean, just, just go toxin after toxin. Our dementia epidemic is predictable based on people's bioload of, of toxins. So as I keep on answering, as you keep on answering the questions, they generate sub-questions <laughs> that I'm thinking about. <laughs> um, I want to get back to this fat toxins dyad because we kind of all know, I think we all agree now that healthy fats are good for you. You know, back in the back in the 70s when it was like eat more snack wells, eat more Oreos, you know, low fat, high refined carb, you know, it's contributed to the epidemic of metabolic syndrome that we have obviously in our country now and everything around the world as well. Um, but, you know, fats aren't bad. It's just that certainly the wrong types of fats are are not good. But what is the relationship, I guess, between environmental toxins and the amount of fat someone has? And where do those toxins end up? Do they end up in the visceral fat? Do they end up in, in breast tissue, in the brain, which is mostly fat? Like, does it just go everywhere? And and I guess my other question with that, if there's not too many questions at one time. Is, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's, let's do one question. We'll do time. one thing at a time. Okay. Yeah. okay. Okay. So um, first off, so the toxins can be fat soluble or they can be water soluble. Okay. So in general, the longest live um, toxins in the body are fat soluble and get stored in, 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 the, in the fat tissues. And a number, and but nonetheless, there are some others as well, like bisphenol A. So it turns out, uh, is a, a graph you can look at prisons levels of bisphenol A and look at the, their body weight, waist circumference, things like that. They all go up in proportion to bisphenol A. And that's one reason why the researchers are calling many of these chemicals obesogens as well, because they induce obesity. So the toxins induce obesity. If someone's already obese and has elevated visceral fat, are they more likely to accumulate fat-soluble toxins in that fat? Let me address that a little differently. So some researchers have hypothesized that people may be unconsciously overeating to produce more fat to dilute the toxins so it doesn't disrupt their physiology as much. Wow. Isn't that an interesting concept? That is so interesting. So it might even... Um, sort of influence the hormones, the, the leptin and ghrelin and things like that? Of course. That? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that, you have to look at that. And, and then the, remember, and, and look at the other side. So once a person has all the extra weight and it is full of endocrine disrupting toxins, when they try to lose weight, those toxins get released. They feel terrible. And also, by the way, zaps the thyroid. And so it makes it harder for them to lose weight because they feel terrible every time they try to lose weight. Yeah, so they're going through a, 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 I guess we can call it a detox reaction or basically increased toxic load that they're having to filter through. Plus, like yes. you said, it's affecting their resting metabolic rate through the thyroid. Yes. Got it. So one of the things I, I started late, later on my practice when people came to me for helping with weight loss, more and more I started getting into detox programs rather than weight loss programs. And their weight would go away when I detoxify them. Pretty right. interesting. 
not, you know, not as fast as you know, uh, extreme caloric restriction, but much better results. Got it. Let's talk about sweating for a second, because I know that mm-hmm. sauna is very popular, hot and cold showers are very popular. What's the role of sweating in detoxification? And are there certain environmental toxins that you need to utilize the sweat mechanism to detox You know those? Yeah, another great question. Great question. So uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to do this, but you might want to look at the work of Stephen Genuis, uh, an MD in Edmonton, Alberta. So I, I really like the guy. So he said, well, everybody thinks that sweat is detoxifying. Well, how about we just take a, a dozen volunteers, put them in a sauna, sweat them, and then measure the level of toxins in the blood, in the urine, and in their sweat. And here's the kicker here. So now it was sweat effective at getting rid of many toxins, it was effective at getting rid of toxins that are difficult to get rid of, like cadmium, for example. But what was even more interesting and concerning, they, he found toxins in the sweat that were not in the blood or the urine. So what's happened, the body sequestered these things to try to keep them as much out of circulation as they could. And when we finally gave it a, by a chance to get rid of it through sweating, well, I said, oh, God, thank you. Let's get rid of this stuff. Got it. So sweat, it sounds like, is one of the essential Very detox pathways. Very effective. Um, and and uh, I mean, there's different protocols for this that people have tried. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, if you go on the internet, there's probably a billion different protocols for this. What is your general approach to, you know, how do you increase sweat? I Rather than say what exact temperature people should do, I you do it based on time. So, for example, um, my wife and I, my wife sweats at much lower temperatures than I do in the sauna. Okay. So you just have to look at what's right for the person. So I recommend whatever temperature is necessary so they can sweat profusely for at least 20 minutes. Okay. Do long if you want to, but the research shows that you get the biggest benefit after about 20 minutes. You still keep getting more benefit. That first 20 minutes is really critical. And you must make sure you're drinking both plenty of fluids and trace minerals. Because while sweating, we will lose some of the trace minerals as well. And we want to make sure they're being replaced. And also, so the solution I recommend for sweating, so not only 20 minutes of heavy sweating, but I also recommend use a solution that's alkalinizing. So I like using a solution which is magnesium, potassium, citrate, because that's alkalinizing. And that alkalinizing makes it a little bit easier for the body to get rid of the toxins. Thank you. Um, we have a we have a uh, little side question we wanted to, I think, just uh, bring up. We're very um, interested, and I think a lot of people are interested in electromagnetic frequencies, EMFs, and you know, EMFs are uh, considered now a a toxin. Also, so we're talking about toxins today. Um, what are EMFs? Which I guess we we can talk about that briefly. But how do they impact our health? And is that really a you know is that something that's uh, synergistic with these other toxins? Uh, that's a very good question. And I, I honestly do not have a good answer for you. Um, I, I, I did some looking at that research several years ago and it was so messy. Um, I realized that uh, the metals and chemicals were way easier. <laughs> so I decided More research needed, and, okay. Yeah, more metals good... and chemicals. The research on the, on the yeah. EMF is, it's all over the place. It's I, evolving. I, Hopefully I we'll have some uh, answers in a couple of years and just please, keep on kind of going here. Um, and let's talk about air and water because, you know, these are some of the basic things. We're always drinking water. We're always breathing air. What can we do to have healthier air sources first? And then we can talk about water for a sec. So in terms of air, if people have a forced air uh, heat and cooling system in their home, they need to put in a whole house filter. 
So you can get a, and it should be rated at least MERV 8. Uh, we personally have a MERV 16. So what that does is that it clears out um, about 99.9% .9 of the stuff in the air. I can't emphasize it enough. The research on air pollution and disease throughout the world is some of the strongest research on vinyl toxins anywhere. So there's no question that, you know, we see that, that diesel truck going down the, the, the highway and spewing out that blue black smoke and it kind of looks bad. It is bad. Okay. It's really, really hard on people. So I, I say now, now if you can't do a whole house filter, by the way, run it all the time, always keep it running. Then you want to have into the rooms that where you spend your most time, get a good quality HEPA filter. Uh, so bedroom, kitchen, family room, wherever people spend the most time, but you've got to clear out the air pollution. And another nice thing about that is that this way might be called a passive way to decrease toxicity. So all you have to do is one time, put this in, and then you don't have to do anything else at that point. You just keep getting clean air rather than having to do something about it. That's great. That's great. And do you have any recommendations for water filters? Anything? Right. That... So th the same concept with water filters. So um, what you want to do is put on the water line coming into your home, a carbon block filter with a metal precipitator. Now, the good news is that it'll get out, get out the toxins in the water with two exceptions. It's not for getting rid of arsenic. It uh, does not get rid of fluoride, but it also gets rid of chlorine. So for example, we have one of those in our house, which means you have to put chlorine tablets into the tanks of your of your toilets, otherwise the toilets will smell. Will smell. Great. Uh, so that's 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 great. Uh, thank you for that. And then um, this is a very overall question that uh, I don't know if anyone has the answer to, but if anyone does, it would be used. So what are some practical steps to improve and clean up our, our environment? You know, we all know that our just global environment is toxic. H how do we take steps, you know, you and I, uh, Lara, you know, just everyone kind of listening to this. Uh, what are some practical steps we can do? So um, the power of the consumer. Manufacturers will create what we buy and they'll stop creating what we don't buy. Okay, so storage containers in your kitchen, only use glass. If it's plastic, throw it away. Okay, so step-by-step, step, only buy organically grown food. Okay, that way the conventional group folk growers realize, wow, the losing markets here, I guess I better start growing my foods properly. I mean, just look at everything you do in your life, healthy beauty aids. Only choose healthy beauty aids that don't have phthalates in them, don't have lead in them, don't have arsenic in them. I mean, it's incredible what's in health and beauty aids, what's allowed to be in health and beauty aids. So only pick those that are low in toxins. So the more we make these choices, the more the world will conform. I, mean, I look at here in Seattle. So I've been living in Seattle now for over half a century. We used to have um, two health food stores in Seattle, okay? So for me to get organic food, I had to go to these health food stores and frankly, the fruit and vegetables they had weren't very nice, okay? But I knew they were healthy, okay? But they, weren't, they didn't look very nice. Um, now I can go to my local major grocery store and they'll have an organic section in it. Why are they doing that? Because of consumer demand. So I know people have asked about, you know, the role of big agriculture and, and co-opting the organic label. What is your opinion on organic versus regenerative and local and all this yeah. stuff? Now, that, that's very valid, and I, I think there are a, num a number of loopholes uh, in the organic legislation. Now, having said that, it's still better than still better, yeah. foods. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell people, uh, do two things. One is, see if there's a local farm co-op. 
Okay, so you can do one of these uh, co-ops where you pay the a farmer a certain amount per year, and they'll give you a box of whatever's whatever's uh, fresh at that or whatever's ripening at that particular point. Grow some of your own food. I've been really experimenting with this a lot. I'm to the point now where I'm probably growing 25% of our calories on our own property, which is wonderful because our, the food we grow ourselves is way better than even organically grown foods from the grocery store. It just you, you, it's fresher. You can pick um, more fragile varieties, things like that. They're more tasty. Yeah, yeah, and then and then there's probably some energetic properties as well to the food as probably you're growing it. And you know, what kind of things do you like to grow uh, at your place there? Everything that I like to eat. So let's see. <laughs> we have got kale, tomato, uh, snap peas, sugar peas, fava beans, corn, squash. Uh, bell peppers, hot peppers. I mean, I, I can keep it. So delicious, keep makes a delicious salad. <laughs> and there. Lots of fruit, blueberries yes. and, and cherries and plums and I just, I just, grapes. I just, I just that's love that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you so much, Dr. Joe, for being on today. It's been such a pleasure and bringing lightning conversation about toxins. And thank for those listening out there. If you haven't checked it out, please check out Dr. Joe's book that he wrote called The Toxin Solution. I think that's a really amazing book. It's going to be very mind-blowing to, to a lot of you if you haven't really really made that connection until now um, in terms of the the really connection between toxins and, and human health. And we just have some uh, closing questions that are more fun, light kind of questions. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, just if you would like to share with us, uh, do you have a morning routine? And if so, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. <laughs> Well, so my wife and I have a morning routine. We uh, she makes us coffee in the morning, and so we have a nice organic coffee with everything organic in it. And then we'll typically uh, look at a news report or something of this nature, talk for a little while before we go to work. So pretty straightforward. Get up early in the morning, work, have a cup of coffee, and I don't have breakfast until typically about eleven o'clock in the morning. Okay, so, so a little of doing intermittent that. fasting and. Um, and then in terms of the coffee, since we're talking about toxins today on this podcast, uh, what do you think about the mold-free coffees? Do you think that people are going to Starbucks or you know other coffee places? Should they be looking for mold-free coffee? How important is that? I think uh, avoiding uh, mold-contaminated products is a really good idea. Okay. Um, most people don't realize, I'll just go a little broader on that. Most, most people don't realize that 50% of the buildings in North America, both homes and offices, are water damaged. And so they're actually creating mold problems in those facilities. If you look at um, an adult onset di uh, asthmatic, somebody who's <clears throat> never had asthma and as an adult develops asthma, according to one study that I read, 71% of it is due to entering in a new job or a new home that has mold damage. Wow. So, so the coffee beans are getting the mold from not the soil, but essentially from the water damage building, essentially? Oh, no, for the coffee beans, just how they're stored and transported. How they're stored. So if they're okay, all okay, moist. If they're all moist, they'll build it. I mean, anything. I mean, you, you leave it at room temperature and make it moist, mold will grow on it. Yeah, yeah. What book or podcast are you enjoying the most right now, and why do you enjoy it? I don't tend to read books or podcasts. I just look at the I look at the research. I mean, I just, I don't know if, well, I'm curious about something. This I is the best answer read, read that we've there. ever had on this podcast. I really like that a lot. <laughs> well, and let me go further with the research. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even look at just the abstracts. I look at the data tables because over half the abstracts are, have wrong information in them. 
Yeah. So I look at data tables. Got it. What do you do every day to cultivate joy? Besides, I, I saw your cat there uh, a little bit ago. You know, that's a good question. I'm actually struggling with that right now. So I used to be an avid basketball player. I'd play um, two hours of full court basketball three times a week. Nice. I love doing that. I did it for almost love four years. Love basketball too, yeah. Oh, good, yeah. Unfortunately, two years ago, my, my, my hip and my knee said, that's it. Uh, <laughs> Can't go yeah. any further. So I, you know, I'll play to everybody by 10, 15 years uh, in duration. But so now I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what to replace basketball with. And I haven't figured it out. And it's really bothering me. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think, I think it's a great to, uh, yeah, it's a great sport and, um, yeah, just getting into basketball a little bit more myself too. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, but thank you so much, Dr. Joe, for coming on again today. Really appreciate it. And, uh, how can listeners learn more about you and either work with you or, or I guess, you know, interact with you in some way? Well, uh, thank you. So these days I'm not seeing patients. I'm, I'm my main role. I think right now is teaching the doctors and writing books and textbooks. Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if people want to, if you want to be healthier, get my book, the toxin solutions, read it and do it. Okay. And seriously, people who do it the first two weeks, they will notice a significant improvement in their health. So that's my recommendation. Get my books. Use what I say. Got, it's the best I, it's best I know how to give people guidance. Great. Thank you so much again, Dr. Joe. And thank you to listeners for taking time to tune in today. And if you enjoy this conversation, please leave a comment, uh, send a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. We're here to be of service to you, bring you the, the best, best guests like Dr. Joe. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next conversation. Thanks for being with us today and stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thank you.